Welcome to the Cover Crop Strategies Podcast, brought to you by GoSeed. I'm McCain Vogel, Assistant Editor at Cover Crop Strategies. In this episode, Oliver Peoples, President and CEO of Metabolics Yield 10 Bioscience Company, talks about Camelina, its benefits as a cool season cover crop, and potential incentives for farmers to grow Camelina. I'm Oli Peoples, that's uh, the name I uh, typically use. My background obviously is advanced uh, science. I came out of MIT many years ago. I started a company called Metabolics, which uh, back in, I guess, 10, 12 years ago, started a big program on the oilseed camelina to develop it as a new platform crop. And um, uh, in 2017, uh, we actually refocused the entire business on what's now known as the Yield 10 business uh, and became the Yield 10 bioscience company. Uh, and I'm currently president and CEO. So I have a science background, but obviously 20, 30 years of innovation, uh, commercial development, partnering, uh, all of these types of things. And so what's the main difference now that you guys are known as Yield 10? Kind of how has the, the company's focus shifted? The, the focus is, you know, it's, the focus has shifted, uh, you know, first from essentially, I would say, industrial biotechnology to make degradable plastics uh, using fermentation technology to essentially using Camelina as a platform crop to produce sustainable products. And, and even since 2017, it's continued to sort of shift more and more towards uh, the Camelina as a business. Uh, and really, the business really business model really is, um, you know, contracting Camelina production with growers. Obviously, that requires a tight partnership with the farmers. And then seeking offtake agreements for the products from grain processing, uh, whether it's biofuels uh, today, which is obviously a huge interest, uh, or, or basically... Um, in the future, omega-3 oils, specialty omega oils, and then ultimately, you know, further out in time, the, the PHA bioplastics. So I think some of our listeners are uh, familiar with Camelina. Not all of them are probably. So let's talk about it a little bit more. Um, what would you say makes Camelina an ideal cover crop and, and who would it be most ideal for in terms of uh, climate and uh, region? Yeah, so so you know, obviously, there's both spring and winter types of camelina, and one of the one of the big attractions, of course, is it, it requires fewer inputs than things like canola. Uh, but yield ten developed a, a very winter hardy, true true winter crop uh, from it called WDH two, and um, you know, last year, uh, primarily in the Pacific Northwest region, mainly in sort of Alberta, Manitoba, you know, we we planted about a thousand acres of this winter crop. Um, to a bunch of fairly skeptical farmers, actually. Uh, you know, farmers are kind of show me people. They want to see it and they want to see it in their neighbor's farm and they want to see how it does. Um, and quite frankly, it went extremely well. Uh, and so obviously that was harvested. I think back in July, it was harvested and actually delivered to, to one of our end users, which is a, a partnership we have with a, a crusher refiner uh, organization that's private. And so, you know, it's very winter hardy. We've grown all the way through through the mid west up into northern Alberta, as far north as the Peace River region. And as you know, the, the weather the weather in those areas gets pretty chilly. Uh, the interesting thing about it is, um, you know, in places like Kansas, where sometimes they get snow, sometimes they don't get a lot of snow. Uh, even without snow, the, these lines actually survived uh, perfectly well. I mean, it's a very robust uh, plant. And, uh, and then in the areas of Alberta, what we found, particularly in the dry land areas, um, we actually good, had pretty good crops, even though in some areas they only had one and a half inches of rain over the growing season, which is not a lot of water. So um, remarkable, remarkably hardy, remarkably cold tolerant, and yet still very early in this development cycle. So tremendous upside potential. And so you would say it's 
relatively drought resilient as well. You know, we, we, we were very, you know, it's one that you never like to see other crops fail, but we, and the side by sides, we saw, you know, we had a decent crop of Camelina. We had no canola, like not us, the grower had no canola. His mustard was really struggling. And yet Camelina looked pretty good. So, you know, that's a great thing for growers to have a winter cover crop that can also, shall we say, tolerate these kind of extreme conditions that growers have been experiencing. You know, so as another crop in the rotations, we think it adds tremendous value including the cover cropping as well. One thing I know a lot of growers look to when they're planting cover crops is uh, weed suppression. Does it have weed suppressing properties or is it the kind of cover crop you'd want to kind of plant in um, a field that's not as um, weed stricken? Yeah. So, you know, I would say right now, this has been our first kind of large scale experience. And so you kind of need to see on, you know, hundreds of thousand acres before you kind of get a view of it. So I think it does generally repress weeds. Uh, however, um, we have a pipeline of uh, weed uh, herbicide tolerant varieties coming through the pipeline fairly quickly. And obviously the goal ultimately is, is to, to leverage also the weed control from this herbicide tolerant varieties as another mechanism to, to assist the growers and add value for them. So those things are all kind of coming fairly quickly through the pipeline. I think the first herbicide line is probably gonna be released probably 2025. Uh, and then behind that, um, especially for cover cropping, uh, you've got to also deal with um, you know, the plant backdate. If you, if you planted a particular crop, you use, for example, a group two herbicide, then there's plant back limitations. So you can't really plant camelina on land that has group two in the spring crop because those residues are going to really impair your productivity. And so very recently, we actually demonstrated in field trials that we actually had not only over the top weed control, but we had great stack. Uh, shall we say, um, stack herbicides for basically tolerance to the residues of both types of chemistries used in, in group two herbicides. So growers are very excited about that. Uh, they like this thing because they see, we can just drop this in, this is going to be great. And is it meant to be sort of a replacement for canola? Is that, in my understanding of that, correct? No, not really, because I mean, you can't really grow canola over the winter. It just doesn't do well. I mean, the Canadians spent 30 years trying to do that, and it never never really took off because it just doesn't really work. Uh, it doesn't have the cold hardiness of camelina. Uh, and I think the other thing that's important to understand is, you know, this cover cropping in, in the Pacific North, the further north you get, there's fewer frost-free days. So obviously you've got limitations on, on what, what you could plant afterwards. But as you move down into Kansas, the potential to integrate this seamlessly into rotations so that you can sort of plant soybean after you harvest the camelina becomes very, very exciting. And obviously that's why we were doing those tests in, in Kansas. And so, you know, we've got we to gotta be realistic. This crop is early, um, it's got enormous potential. We're seeing good success with these first scale, scale trials. Uh, and we have obviously a very strong pipeline of enabling technologies that are coming rapidly that's going to benefit growers as well. So uh, very excited about what we're doing here. So I want to get a little bit further into the weeds, pun intended, of um, the science behind this and sort of the, the science aspect of your company. Um, so I guess maybe a good place to start is talking about the PHA bioplastic element of this. Is there kind of a way you can explain this um, in simple terms to, to farmers and kind of how, it, how it's going to affect them? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's, it's interesting. So the PHA bioplastics, I think, is a you know that's likely to be the third product. And really, what we're trying to do is we're trying to add value to the grain. So, so think about it from the point of view of you know traditional oil seed, camelina or canola. You basically process, extract the oil, 
uh, which can go into, you know, whether it's renewable fuels or food or whatever it is. And then you, the meal obviously can go into animal feed. And for Camelina, you know, the, the, the oil's already got rinse credits for renewables. Uh, it has the potential for a very low carbon index, which makes it even more attractive for renewables. And the protein meal has been approved uh, in, in rations for, for use in feed. So, you know, many, most of the hurdles are kind of, with respect to that, are gone. But then you start looking beyond biofuels and you sort of say, well, this, this is a great platform crop. Um, and what else can you make in it? Well, the first thing we're going to make in it is um, uh, an oil composition that's been modified using genetic engineering or GMO, uh, such that it produced high levels of EPA and DHA omega-3 fatty acids, which are pretty important in human health and wellness. Uh, the primary source today, of course, is fish oil. And so we have a drop-in replacement land-based sustainable source of fish oil uh, and omega-3 fatty acids for nutrition and nutraceuticals, which is coming along fairly quickly behind uh, the launch of the biofuel business. So that's number one. But it's not going to be huge acres, but it's going to be a much higher value, which, of course, should be reflected in, in, in the pricing to farmers. Um, and the second thing is, is, is obviously this PHA bioplastics. So again, you know, our history is in this area uh, of PHA bioplastics. That's where we, why we founded the original company. And the big challenge always was the cost structure using fermentation technologies. So it's almost, uh, and we had a joint venture with, with ADM called TELUS that really de-risked the value chain from the from extracting the plastic from the microorganisms, microorganisms in that case, all the way through the process to make you know, any kind of plastic article you could want, uh, except either sustainably produced, number one, and number two, they're 100% biodegradable because they're natural materials. So they're not synthetic. Um, so nature can can essentially degrade these fairly well. And so you can make things with them. And uh, this is one of the things we made. This is made from PHA bioplastic. You know, this was made in an engineered bi bacteria. That same plastic can be made in an engineered camelina seed. So now think about it. I've now got two seed products. I've got three seed products. So uh, because of the genetics, yield 10 is inserted into camelina. Uh, you produce the protein meal still, which is great. So you can still address feed applications. You still get oil, not as much, but you still get oil. But then you get this third product, this higher value product, the PHA bioplastic. Uh, and you have to separate those three components, which is, again, it's not, it's not rocket science at that point. And what you've done is you've just upgraded the value per acre of, of the harvest, which, of course, again, should benefit the grower and allow yield tent to then increase revenue. Uh, and, of course, bioplastics in the context of the plastics market, there's almost unlimited demand at the right price point. And the challenge with the earlier technologies using fermentation is you first had to produce a crop, you had to extract sugar or you had to extract oil. You had to build a very expensive fermentation facility costing hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, you had to use a lot of energy. And then it was a very efficient, inefficient conversion process from either sugar or oil to make the bioplastic. By doing this directly in seed, you don't need any of that. You basically have an extra separation step in, in a crushing facility. Uh, and lo and behold, you have a material that has just enormous global potential, which is something that would be pretty disruptive. So very exciting in the future. But we've got to walk before we run, so we've got to get this biofuel business up and running. We'll come back to the show in a moment, but first, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, GoSeed. Plant GoSeed's Fixation Balanza Clover and save up to $37 per acre in fertilizer input costs. 
At a trial conducted by the Ewing Demonstration Center in Illinois, fixation Bonanza clover fixed nearly double the nitrogen per acre over Dixie Crimson clover. Fixation Bonanza clover is the cover crop to improve your soil health, increase cash crop yields, and make a positive impact on the planet. Visit www.fixationclover.com to learn why GoSeed is the industry leader in cover crop breeding and research. And now, let's get back to the episode with Dr. Oliver Peoples. So the goal eventually would be to provide some sort of like incentives directly to farmers for growing it then and and it's got, I mean job number one this has got to benefit farmers <laughs> if this doesn't benefit far- farmers you know guess what they're not going to grow it N- nor should they right they're business people so and very savvy business people so no, our goal would be to sort of make sure that they prefer to plant our seed because our seed generates more is, is easier for them to use number one uh, b it helps them with the other rotations uh, makes it very simple for them number three it actually generates some extra revenue. It's, they've got, it's got to be a windfall. And, and our goal is a win-win partnership, of course. You talked a little bit in your answer about sort of making like gene changes to major crops. What exactly does that do? Can we talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, you know, I mean, farmers are very used to this. I mean, the bottom line is pretty much all of the soybean, canola, corn, cotton, you know, even sugar beets uh, in North America are all traditional GMO, right? And uh, obviously, there's a tremendous track record of not only uh, utility to the grower. I mean, it's been a tremendous boom for the farmer, uh, but it's also been a tremendous boom for sustainability because of enabling things like no-till agriculture, right? So that's been huge. Massive reduction in the use of chemical pesticides because of the BT, you know, the insect tolerance. Um, you know, so in general, there's been huge, huge benefits to agriculture overall, and and, and including basically increasing food production. So. You know, we decided uh, a number of years ago that, you know, we have to be believers in this technology. We see we see the real value in it. Uh, and we weren't going to be shy about um, using it in Camelina because ultimately it has to become a high-tech crop comparable to the performance of these other crops. Therefore, you need all the bells and whistles uh, and traits that the growers are used to. So, so we use both GMO, traditional GMO. In fact, the herbicide technology we're pro- progressing very quickly is based on GMO. Uh, is based on technology that's well proven in canola and, and and soybean, and so we're not we're not invent reinventing the wheel here. We're redeploying a proven technology with a long history of safety in a new crop uh, in a way that allows us to leverage that. Um, and then the second thing we do is genome editing. I mean, there's been a lot of buzz around genome editing, and we made good progress with that. It's a fantastic tool. It's more pretty much an advanced breeding tool. I mean, that's really what it is. It's not. Um, it's 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 only as good as the knowledge you have about the genes to modify. And, and that's, of course, the big challenge. It's not the tool, it's the targets. Uh, and so we've made great progress with that. We've actually got genome-edited camelina with higher oil content, altered seed color. And then you think about some of the big the big issues that, not big, but you know things that can be addressed with this. Uh, for example, you want to improve the quality of the meal for a particular feed application. Genome editing is ideal for that. Uh, we've also got genome editing lines that have higher yield. And, uh, you know, with growers, yield, yield, and yield is pretty key. So, you know, we're very excited about where we're going with this. The job number one is obviously getting these GMO varieties of uh, Camelina ready for the grower as soon as possible. And uh, we're very excited about that for a couple of reasons. One, tremendous progress has been made. We have clear line of sight when this is going to happen. But the other reason for it is the, you know, under the Securial in the U.S., 
uh, you know, they're taking a very solid science-based approach to the regulatory process. And so we already filed for regulatory approval for the first of these. We do expect to receive that sometime later this year. And so that process and the challenges associated with earlier regulations has largely been addressed. Uh, again, it's based pretty simply on the just the tremendous history of safety and efficacy and value in use that these uh, technologies have demonstrated. You guys use these tools, the trade factory and grain, is that what it's called, right? So um, I guess it, once again, in simple terms, as simple as possible, what uh, what are these two tools kind of doing to to help target these? Yeah, so so grain is really kind of a, a way to mine data. If you look at what the, the, the ag sector industry has generated over the last uh, decades, it's tons and tons of data. I mean, just enormous quantities, terabytes. I mean, they've got so many bytes, I can't count them. Uh, the reality of it is, however, translating that into actionable targets has really been an issue. So, uh, you know, coming from our advanced synthetic biology background, in other words, really looking at living systems as chemical factories and applying chemical engineering principles, we built the tool called Grain, which is a data mining tool. And what it does is it sort of says, if you want to increase grain yield or oil content, the following things would have to change. If you just if you treat it like a factory, the following things have to change. And then Grain allows you to sort of search the public databases and say, how would we accomplish those changes? And you get a top, you know, get a prioritized list of targets. And so, for example, we took a look at well, let's look at increasing oil content in Camelina. And uh, sure enough, we helped out 200 top top line targets. We reduced that to 20 and tested four. And all four actually impact oil yield uh, in an interesting way. And then that gives you kind of a focus to, to then leverage and, and, and do, this, do the right design of changes that you need to optimize performance. But one of those, you know, a, a gene called C3020, we see a 10% increase in oil and literally Green allowed us to pick that out of the ether space. I mean, it's, it's that was that, that that successful. So it's very exciting. Uh, a lot can be done with it. But right now, again, uh, and we have a pipeline of these things uh, also by Stop and Green, including, you know, advanced, obviously, GMO technologies for crops that we've been able to demonstrate can actually double yield. Uh, now, they're quite far from commercialization, but the concept of doubling yield through this advanced technologies is is really very exciting because it could really massively shift the timelines. And I guess the last thing I would ask you is, is what else uh, What else do farmers need to know about Camelina and, and the future of the crop? You know, we, 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 you know, if you do some crude math and you sort of say, in, in, in the U.S. at least, and you sort of say, well, you know, what could be the next big crop? Well, first of all, we don't have new land. We're, we're getting less arable land every year. In fact, I believe we lost 20 million acres in the last 20 years. So we have to look at land differently. We have to look at it from the point of view of how do we sustain this essential resource, you know, perpetuity, because we're always going to have to eat, number one. And number two, how do I get the most out of it in a way that actually protects the quality of the land, the organic soil carbon content, this type of thing. Uh, and the thing that comes to mind fairly quickly is cover cropping, obviously. And then you get to the key question, which is, well, how do I make that pay for the grower? Not just in the long, not over the long term, but near term, right? Uh, and so that's not a cost for them. And so you see in the farm bill, obviously there's five dollars an acre and, and crop insurance. That's a help. We see some states providing additional incentives, but what we believe is the answer is cash cover crops that enable us to increase product productivity 
generate additional revenue for the grower and allow this to be seamlessly integrated into the existing rotations. And we see there, you know, you could readily see 44 million acres of cover cropping. Uh, if you just take roughly 25% of the total soy and corn acres and say that's cover crop with, you know, oil seeds like camelina or even pennycress with, with other folks. And you say, actually, that's a pretty big, pretty big contribution. That's a pretty attractive proposition. So that's kind of this longer term strategic vision is to get this to millions of acres. But obviously, as a small company uh, with, a, with a pretty small staff, um, terrific staff, but small, uh, we have to really focus. And obviously, we're driving forward now in commercial acres and really focusing on, on the herbicides, which we think is going to allow us to, to wrap the acres quickly. quickly. Big thanks to Oliver Peoples for today's discussion. The full transcript of the episode will be available at CoverCropStrategies.com slash podcasts. Many thanks to our sponsor, GoSeed, for helping to make this Cover Crop podcast series possible. And from all of us here at Cover Crop Strategies, I'm McCain Vogel. Thanks for listening and have a great day.